In late August of 2023, after the hottest July globally on record, Tropical Storm Hillary touched land in California. Hillary was the first such storm to move through Southern California in 84 years, and increasingly anxious reports from weather agencies and emergency services were on the news as she churned up the Baja Peninsula towards San Diego and Los Angeles. Hillary dissipated strength before hitting Southern California and missed major population centers. However, the full force of the storm was felt in the Imperial Valley, sweeping across fields, dropping rain in the Salton Sea, and lashing the surrounding mountains with large amounts of rain. Typically, sandy and parched washes overflowed with mud and debris. Boulders the size of cars were carried down gullies in a slurry of cobbles and mud. Crops were washed from fields. Fruit ready to harvest was destroyed. Two weeks later, with the land still draining, a second storm hit, producing more rain and destroying more crops. Little dribbling gray wolf, who goes by wolf, told us what the rain was like in Slab City in the Imperial Valley. It was like bucket loads of rain at a time. And it was, like I said, eight to nine hours. We had three to five feet in certain areas of water that was just rushing like a water, like a wave. Um, it, the IID could have done a little bit better if they would have left the gates open and drained the canals prior to the storm, but they didn't. The canal gates were closed. The canals were full of water. The water had nowhere to go. So it, it, at one point, the storm caused the water to back up from the canals, and I'm right on the lower canal. And it caused the water to stop flowing towards the canal and started backing up away from the canal, which caused a lot of damage and stuff like that. If, if the canal gates would have been open instead of closed, a lot of the damage out here wouldn't have taken place. Both rain events were unusual and may be attributable to changes in weather patterns associated with global warming. But this is not the only place global warming is disrupting life in the Imperial Valley. The governments around the world are responding to global warming by enacting policies aimed at decreasing the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide, the primary greenhouse gas linked to increased global temperatures and ocean acidification. As we have been describing throughout this podcast, a primary tool to lower the growth of CO2 levels in the atmosphere is to electrify transportation. And this requires batteries. The Imperial Valley is growing an industry that will extract lithium for use in these batteries. The quantity of lithium available results in Imperial Valley being rebranded as Lithium I'm Charles Zukoski, the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering and Material Science and previous provost of the University of Southern California. I'm your host for Electric Future, a podcast series exploring lesser-known stories of the energy transition from the perspectives of people most impacted by the changes that transition will bring. This is Season 1, looking at lithium extraction in the Imperial Valley and how the transition will affect the community and climate change at large. This is our sixth and final episode of the season. We discuss how efforts to slow global climate change are impacting the Imperial Valley, bringing anxiety and opportunity to those who live there. We'll explore all that and more. We've been describing the Imperial Valley with its sweeping vistas, the latest incarnation of Lake Cahuilla, an abundance of agricultural lands, the solar and wind farms, and the geothermal power production. In this episode, we will revisit topics discussed in previous episodes as we place the valley in a global context. The valley is a magical place. It is filled with a take-on-the-world spirit that more times than not results in coming out on top. The taming of the flooding of the Colorado and the resulting agricultural industry feeds the pioneering spirit of the valley. One of the complicated dynamics in the valley is the relationship between this pioneering spirit and the indigenous tribes that were displaced by the settlers who moved into the valley in the late 1800s. The indigenous groups are not of the past, 
but very much contribute to the community advances today. They have knowledge about the land that, by law, needs to be taken into account when developing new projects. This is a relatively new legal requirement, certainly not part of the conversation in the late 1800s and the early 1900s when these groups were driven from lands from which they had sustained their families and were assigned to reservations. Throughout this series, we have heard about many issues from so many different voices across the valley. For example, we heard from Efren Silva, the Dean of Economic and Workforce Development at Imperial Valley College, or IVC, a few episodes ago. He is a longtime resident of the valley and committed to his community. This is where my roots are. This is where my family is. This is where I've, I did all my schooling around here. Um, and, um, you know, I, we're fortunate that we have, you know, San Diego, two hours away, L.A., three hours away. So we, we want to get the, the big city experience. It's there for us to do. But um, I'll tell you a little, a little, perhaps a funny story. So a lot of our young people, um, when they, they go to college, say, well, I'll never come back, right? And they're beginning to come back, and they come back more and more and more. But a personal experience for me is my daughter, who uh, went on to college and uh, was working uh, just north of Santa Barbara, and uh, she's back. She's been back now for five years, right? So the, the key besides being closer to home is uh, being able to buy a house, right? They could not afford to buy a house in Santa Barbara <laughs> by any means. And over here, she's a proud owner of a beautiful home and, uh, you know, um, a, a lifestyle that is accommodating to my grandchildren and her children that, uh, that I don't think you can get in a big city. One perspective of the indigenous people is given by Carmen Lucas, a Kwame Laguna Indian. Uh, the Lucas Ranch is really the Kwame home, home, uh, homeland, I guess, is what I, I have referred to it in many documents. Um, I, I am privileged to, to live here on my ancestors' land, have been here permanently since 1976. Um, however, uh, my father was born here, as was his mother and grandmother, as I understand it. And uh, this has been our, our home since the beginning of time. Uh, we were here long before your white people came in and took our land. Uh, the traditional landscape really encompasses all of the Laguna Mountains down in Pine Valley the Quarter Madeira, Lion's Peak, these are places south of here. There's an old pre-contact trail that comes up out of the Quarter Madeira through the valley, and this is the heartbeat of the Koyami homeland. And then we travel down the Cottonwood Trail into the desert and to places beyond, which would include the Salton Sea, and, and as far as the Colorado River. So. This is just one little tribe of all of San Diego Indiana. The valley is home to professionals who are committed to the region and its communities. A good example is City of Imperial Mayor Katie Burnworth. So uh, I previously I worked for Imperial Irrigation District working on the Salton Sea. And then after some time there, I went to go work for the County of Imperial and worked on the Salton Sea there. and. We were doing a lot of air quality mitigation, and so that's kind of what I was focused on. And so while I was there, I made a lot of relationships with legislators and learned a lot about, you know, how the government and municipalities work, what you have to do to get funding and things like that. And so um, when there was, you know, a seat coming up, I remember I had just got onto the City of Imperial's Planning Commission. And I remember being like, I can do so much more if I am elected and on the City Council. Because I'm also um, a partner in a small brewing company that is in Imperial Valley as well. And so there wasn't a lot of people that were very business-minded and orientated on the council. Um, there wasn't anybody that was really into you know, environmental on the council as well. And that's kind of where my my kids live and, you know, my family lives. And so, and then uh, also like my late fire, my late husband was a firefighter 
and instilling, you know, giving back to community, the community was something that was really important to us to instill in our kids. And so, you know, um, you do it, you instill those values by showing. And so for me, I was like, I want my kids to grow up and know that you give back to your community and you give back to home. Just, yeah, kind of how it happened. Those with deep ties to the land include Frank Salazar, the Kumeyaay tribe, who was an indigenous monitor. But I came out there as, you know, having done repatriation, having consulted with federal agencies, having worked with elders that aren't here anymore, worked with my own grandmother, asked her about certain meanings, you know, certain plants, animals, uses. And then, of course, I was out there, you know, uh, over the years, all seasons, you know, from it's 20 degrees out in the desert. You don't even think the low desert gets that cold. I've been out there when it's, you know, that cold, but I've been out there when it's 127. And I've walked all day in the desert, you know, 10 hour shifts and and, you know, gone, you know, gone from the different sites and the different types of artifacts, you know, from the ceramics to the to the um, lithics, they call them, which is like stone stone tools, you know, whether it be obsidian or or metavolcanic. I've done, you know, I've talked with my my people for years, my elders, my um, leadership, you know, chairmen, vice chairmen and bird singers from my tribe um, to um, put things, yeah, I was part of the exhibit design team for our little exhibit we have at the museum. So, and that Native American interaction of, you know, animals, you know, and, you know, things to put, things not to put, the exhibits, you know, going through some of the, the collections. So there's a lot to it, you know, and that's just my little piece of it. This complex mix of cultures in the bounty of the Colorado River does not solve all problems. The county is poor, suffers from elevated respiratory diseases, and sits on the U.S. southern border, making it a target for asylum seekers. Underlying everything in this harsh desert is the necessity of having access to water in the Colorado. There is a decreasing amount of water flowing in the Colorado, and this places the valley under stress. In 2023, the Imperial Irrigation District agreed to a 4% cut to its water usage, which amounts to conserving a third of all the Colorado River water used in the state of Nevada. More cuts are coming, an ongoing threat to the Valley's mainstay agricultural industry. With the development of demand for electricity that is produced without emitting carbon dioxide and the drop in price of installing this capacity, there has been substantial growth of solar and wind farms in the Valley. These facilities fundamentally change the cultural landscapes and decrease acreage of productive agricultural land. These changes in land use alter the relationship people in the valley have with the land. Lorna Avila is a policy advocate for Comité Civico de Valle, an NGO representing the voices of community members. She captures the way changes in land use will reduce the number of jobs in the fields, adding to unemployment. I would say the concern regarding that is for those agricultural lands, there's farm workers that are working. So a main concern would be what would happen to the jobs of those farm workers. We want to ensure that in our community, we have folks that are working and that are, yeah, that are working. So our main concern is with the folks that might be displaced with their work. If if there is a, a new industry taking over. Geothermal electricity generation facilities, which rely on hot brines produced from wells deep in the earth at the southern reaches of the Salton Sea, sit up against buttes of cultural significance to many of the local Native American groups. The desire to increase the number of geothermal power production facilities is seen as a threat to these cultural resources. With significant geothermal, wind, and solar electricity generation capacity, the valley is an epicenter of decarbonized electricity. This podcast has focused on the lithium in bronze used to generate the geothermal energy. The technology used to directly extract the lithium from these bronze has not been commercialized elsewhere on the globe, and the companies seeking to make this process viable face serious challenges given the corrosive nature of the brines in this region. There is a vast amount of lithium in the brines. The result is that if the technology can be demonstrated at scale, the valley will easily become one of the world's major producers of lithium. Remember, 
what Global Lithium's Joe Lowry told us. And then the, and then the trade-off becomes, because the capital's always going to be higher in California. Just the corrosive brine, just it's California. It's not cheap. So I believe Energy Source probably will have a working DLE somewhere in the world within a couple of years. But then it becomes once you have a working deal, and you know it's bespoke. It has, to, you know, the resonator or whatever it has to be customized for the brine. It's not a, it's not a drop-in technology, which is the other big problem. Because what, what the Reuters and the Bloomberg NEFs of the world want to say was, which DLE works? It'll be Katie bar the door, but maybe <laughs> because it, I believe that I kind of believe it's like Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile that it, you know, it took. A couple of decades of people running 401 and you know from 400.05 until Bannister did it and then you know 12 people or whatever it was did it in the next five years I think you'll see that with DLE because then people will know it can be done and just the IP on that will be leveraged but um, you know we'll we'll see the downsides of expanding this industry are real and are associated with increased dust and solid waste, concerns about water usage, and potential of increased seismic activity. The upsides show great promise. Greater economic activity, attracting additional industries based on access to lithium, and improved educational opportunities. The communities in the Imperia Valley are in the process of deciding how heavily they will commit to this new industry and why that commitment is worthy of the risks. As an advocate for members of the community, Lorna summarizes these concerns. Yes, I would say the main concerns have been the water allocation. We've heard community members ask, but where are we going to get the water from? As you mentioned earlier, right now there's a lot of concerns with the Colorado River, with Lake Mead, that it's depleting. And as of now, here in the Valley, 95% of the water that it's being allocated so it really goes to agriculture as well so we're just asking a lot of questions just where are we going to get the water from we've also heard a lot of misconceptions say, stating oh are we using the water from the Salton sea is that where, where we're going and that's something that we emphasize no we're not but the Salton sea is also a huge concern as we know right now the Salton sea is depleting and mm -hmm. the lake bed is being exposed. There's fertilizers underneath the Salton Sea. There's arsenic, there's lithium. So that's a concern for a lot of frontline, fenceline communities that are near the Salton Sea as well. And that is again, then tied to respiratory concerns. Here in the Imperial Valley, I don't have the exact percentage, but a high number of folks um, suffer with respiratory problems. So, I would say water consumption, the salt and sea, respiratory concerns, health concerns are are the largest like concerns that we've heard from community members. Of importance to the growth of the lithium extraction industry in the Imperial Valley are efforts coordinated by the California state government. The Lithium Valley Commission was charged to bring all parties together to discuss concerns and ensure that these concerns are addressed. This effort led to much knowledge exchange, and it helped the community embrace the lithium extraction industry. Noemi Gallardo, commissioner at the California Energy Commission, talks about the state's role in this process. So we had uh, basically a, a forum that was established through state processes, uh, which was called the Lithium Valley Commission. Well, I should say that's how it was known. It was actually the Blue Ribbon Commission on uh, lithium, a longer name, but um, basically it was a forum to ensure that we had a wide array of representatives who were interested in, involved with, um, impacted by what would happen with uh, an effort to create an advanced battery, um, you know, <clears throat> ecosystem out in the Salton Sea region that would be a domestic supply chain of lithium, et cetera. So, you know, that was called Lithium Valley. And this commission uh, was really helpful in bringing folks together, uh, getting more visibility on this effort and ensuring that there was local representatives, state representatives, 
and then uh, folks from the industry and other areas. So I think that was a good process um, that enabled people to communicate, debate, and discuss what are all the things involved uh, with creating a, a, you know, a lithium valley in a region such as the Salton Sea where uh, there has been so many detrimental impacts. Um, you know, pollution, poverty, it's hit by everything, right? So we wanted to make sure that this was done well and that it included those voices from the local community, not just the state or industry, but everybody. So I thought that worked well. And I think um, it was an effort that was supported by the California Energy Commission. So we were the ones providing staff to have the meetings, uh, to write out reports, um, any of the communication materials needed, et cetera. We weren't depending on industry or you know local community to do that. We felt that as a neutral state agency, we could provide that uh, support. Now, I want to pull all this into a global context. I want to change our perspective for a moment. This podcast is focused on untold stories of the energy transition. We have spent little time discussing the origin of the climate transition. In drawing conclusions, the activities in the Imperial Valley need this broader context. As with all large storms in the last few years, the unusual levels of rain in the valley in late summer of 2023 were discussed in terms of global warming. Increased ocean temperatures result in more energetic storms and altered wind patterns, giving rise to larger weather extremes than have been experienced in a thousand years. While weather events over a few years do not, in and of themselves, make for climate change, there is growing evidence that increased global temperatures are, in fact, at the root of the increased frequency of severe weather. In many regions, Climate-induced weather extremes are associated with droughts, and these lead to forest fires that are fundamentally altering the landscape of the American West. In the summer of 2023, we saw wildfire devastation of large areas of eastern Canadian forests, leading to dangerous air quality up and down the eastern seaboard of the U.S. There are skeptics that these changes are produced by human activity in particular that they arise from the burning of fossil fuels. However, significant changes occurring in the economy reflect dramatic changes in weather patterns that, if not caused by increased CO2 levels, are highly correlated with them. An example is that in many states, families and businesses faced increased difficulties in gaining access to home insurance. Insurance companies spread risk over a population equally likely to see a severe event. Individuals pay premium, which sum to give the size of the risk pool, the maximum amount of money that could be paid out. With the knowledge that there is a low likelihood of severe events harming their property, but by paying into the risk pool, they know that if the event occurs, they can recover. The insurance industry is highly regulated, and premiums are set by the expected level of payout. This is estimated from actuarial studies that look back over history to provide an understanding of the frequency of fires or severe storms. In an increasing number of localities, the payouts being made by insurance companies for storm and fire-related damage are consistently exceeding actuarial or historical predictions. This is evidence that conditions are different from the past and are generating greater damage and thus payouts. The risk pool cannot cover the payouts, and the companies are unable to provide insurance at a price the customer is willing to pay. The result is that the companies stop offering insurance in these states. This is a new phenomenon, driven by increases in extreme weather events that are not predicted by historical models. The loss of access to housing insurance is clear evidence that weather patterns are rapidly changing. Much work links these changes to the observed rise in the globe's average temperatures. While global warming is an established fact, in small pockets, the link between man's contribution to atmospheric CO2 and global warming continues to be debated. However, there is no debate 
that increased CO2 levels are increasing oceanic acidification, which, when combined with increases in ocean temperatures, threatens the basis of much of the planet's ecosystem. This is well understood mass action. Higher CO2 levels in the atmosphere increase the amount of CO2 absorbed in the ocean. Once absorbed, the CO2 undergoes a well-studied reaction to form carbonic acid, which dissociates to increase the acidity. Like the case of DDT in the 70s, which was shown to result in weaker birds' eggs, which devastated the ability of birds to successfully breed, the increased acidity weakens the base of the world's ecosystem to survive. Global warming, its links to increased CO2 levels, contested or not, and the environmental change resulting from increased CO2 levels is recognized as a threat by countries all over the world. The result is that there is a global consensus to reduce CO2 production. Laws and policies are being introduced around the world to lower the amounts of fossil fuels that are burned to power our lives. Here is Gavin Newsom, governor of California in August of 2023. As we're standing here in the context of every breath you take, uh, there's the old frame that I think sort of distillates this moment or distills the essence of the why we are here. It's about the fresh air of progress versus a stale air of normalcy. Uh, what you see behind me is a juxtaposition, a physical manifestation, perhaps symbolic more than anything else, of a little garden. A uh, fresh garden has been planted uh, with an old industrial plant you see behind us, which is in the process of transitioning uh, to a low-carbon uh, green growth framework that's advancing not only the economic opportunities, Madam Mayor, uh, of your city and this region and our state and nation, but the sustainable values that we all share in terms of our fate and future, the work we have to do to address Mother Nature, who I say often, uh, particularly having just come back from Tulare Lake, she bats last and she bats a thousand. She's just chemistry, biology, and physics. And so there's a humility at this moment, the world we're living in, a humility as it relates to our obligation to address the future head on, to address our values, not just in terms of Mother Nature, but to invest uh, in people, as Christy said, our values as it relates to markets. About 26% of these emissions come from tailpipes, from light and heavy duty vehicles. Another 25 to 27% comes from electricity plants that are powered by coal and gas. The obvious place to reduce CO2 emissions is then to electrify the world's vehicle fleets and generate electricity with technologies that do not produce CO2. And this is what is happening. Both of these solutions require methods to store energy on the vehicle or when the sun is not shining or the wind not blowing for solar and wind farm electricity generation. Electricity storage is typically done with batteries. A storage of electricity in chemical form that can be reversibly converted to electricity. For vehicles, a high energy density is needed, that is, a lot of power in a small mass. The world's best current technologies use lithium as a major component of these batteries. The growth in demand for electric batteries is creating an explosive growth in demand for lithium, an increase in lithium production of 10 times what is currently produced is estimated to be needed by 2035. This speaks to why lithium in the Imperial Valley is generating so much interest. There is demand. But there are many sources of lithium in the world. The pressure to extract lithium from the valley brines also has a geopolitical component. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the global economy was shocked by the Arab oil embargo in the formation of OPEC, where major oil-producing countries banded together to control and drive up the price of oil. The shock to the global economy was enormous, and among other effects, resulted in the development of geothermal energy production in Imperial Valley. No country wants to have their economy held hostage to monopolies in production of critical materials. The experience with the Arab oil embargo, the need to protect economies, the reliance of transportation on this critical material, and the sensible desire to diversify sources of critical materials makes the countries of the world look at the lithium supply chain with concern.
The largest sources of lithium are Australia, South America, and China. But lithium from these sources is in the form of concentrates and must be refined to be of a grade used in batteries. The refining is done in China, which dominates the production of battery-grade lithium carbonate. And this is seen as a threat to economic stability. The result is a rush to develop new lithium sources and lithium refineries. The Inflation Reduction Act passed by the U.S. two years ago creates incentives for electric vehicles and components when the vehicle and components going into the vehicle are manufactured in the U.S. or with U.S. trading allies. On top of this, policies are being put in place mandating that all new vehicles must have zero tailpipe emissions. These incentives for changes are substantial. Profits are to be made in producing electric vehicles and their batteries in the U.S. But the lithium used in these vehicles' batteries must also be sourced in the U.S. or with U.S. trading allies. These factors combine to drive interest swirling around the lithium in the Imperial Valley. Lithium is not an uncommon element. It concentrates in certain minerals found in hard rocks and in brines. The explosive growth in demand for lithium drives up the price of this element, and this creates demands for more extraction facilities. More mines are seeking permits, and more mine facilities are under development than we have ever seen in history. And there are expectations that even all these new facilities will not meet the expected demand for lithium. This suggests volatile prices. For example, in 2023, the lithium price went up by a factor of six and then dropped back. This volatility will continue until the market matures with supply aligned with demand. This takes more production facilities. But mines and shallow evaporation pond production technologies are not universally popular. Recently, Rio Tinto had permits pulled in Serbia when the nation rose up in protest of a large underground lithium mineral mine. In the U.S., there is continued controversy over the Thacker Pass mine where lithium is concentrated in clay minerals. There are growing concerns about drawdown of water tables and destabilizing of local communities in the Atacama region of Argentina and Chile. Joe Lowry explains. <laughs> Battery factory wipes out Thacker Pass Phase One, hundred percent of it, because it's if you if you look at lithium intensities on average around 0.8. So if you've got a hundred kilowatt hour battery in your Tesla, you need 80 kilograms of lithium carbonate equivalent to make mm -hmm. that battery, mm -hmm. and that that math is is probably. You know, it, it it depends on who the producers are and how efficient they are, but that that's a pretty good rough number. And so if you're going to build 25 of these plants in the next five to 10 years, and you you have only one permitted lithium project in the United States right now, and that's Thacker Pass, and, and you have a really tiny operation in Silver Peak, Nevada, that will never, never do 10,000 tons. They're trying to double it. Um, but you can see the problem we have. Yeah. And yes, the Imperial Valley is the poster child for lithium potential. Indeed, lithium mines are now commonly seen as being green extractivism. This term is used as shorthand to describe what is seen as covering over the social and environmental degradation of mining with the claim these projects are essential to fight climate change. Extraction projects are criticized as placing the profit of investors over the lives and ecology of the communities where the extraction takes place. In this argument, materials are extracted, but little benefit remains with the community which experiences the irreversible impact of the extraction. Some call this the exporting of environmental destruction so that rich urban communities can live their zero-carbon lifestyles. Frank talks about his experiences with green extractivism in the valley. Uh, lithium, I know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all for electric, but I mean, you know, it's just a matter of it just not destroying, you know, I mean, it's about climate change, but the, the, the political climate and the, the, uh, what do you call it? The intellectual climate, if it's destroying that, it's just, I'm, I'm just watching it. And I'm, now they're, 
think they're going to fall a little short of the this electric now electric car sales i saw that but you know my electric bill was like just outrageous i don't have solar power and yet i'm looking at these turbines blowing right behind me and then you know the charging for transfer and, and all that and i go well we got a power transfer station right here and i'm looking at tons of renewables all right here and all that desert but yet my bill is like this i go i did this you know it's like it, it just it just when you're destroying people with energy and you're paying so much for energy now with both fuel or electricity i'm like i don't see a good out but i mean i'm all for like electric my, you know, my son has a hybrid car i like the hybrid thing for sure the direct lithium extraction technology to be used in the valley while never commercialized has a much smaller environmental footprint than hard rock mining or evaporative technologies thus companies seeking to profit from selling lithium into this booming market see an opportunity to limit environmental impact by developing DLE technologies in the valley. In addition, the brine production and reinjection technologies used in DLE are the same as those used with geothermal power production, thus reducing the capital cost of the plant. Now, let's connect all the dots. So here we are. We live on a planet that is beginning to smolder under the burden of greenhouse gas production. We, as a globe, as a nation, as states, as cities, and as individuals, have agreed we will do something about this situation. A solution has been found in electrifying transportation and generating the needed electricity from non-CO2-emitting sources. Minerals and quantities not currently available are required to undergo the transition from fossil fuel to electricity-driven vehicles. A source of a key mineral, lithium, exists in the Imperial Valley, and there are projects afoot to extract that lithium. Communities in the valley are in the process of weighing the pros and cons of growing a lithium extraction industry. This podcast, Electric Futures, was developed to learn about how the members of the community are thinking about this process. As you've heard in this series, community concerns revolve around increased dust, increased solid waste, and increased usage of canal water, and resulting impacts on Sultan Sea mitigation. There is a concern that with the growth of geothermal power production, there will be increased seismic activity. The communities feel that in allowing the construction of low-carbon electricity generation technologies, they have suffered from green extractivism. Beyond disturbed cultural landscapes, solar and wind farms are felt to have left little behind. The wealth from these facilities largely leaves the community, and the benefit of the electricity goes out of the valley. L.A. Times climate columnist Sammy Roth explains. Despite all the benefits to putting solar on farmland, the less water use and not destroying wildlife habitat in the same way as you would in the desert, it's controversial because farming is really the sort of heart and soul of the Imperial Valley. I mean, if you haven't been there before, this is this is why this place exists today as we know it. It exists because more than 100 years ago, uh, early farmers built these canals to bring Colorado River water from the border with Arizona into the desert into Imperial they have half a million acres of farmland out there now that really is the just total center of the economy of this place and of the employment and of the tax revenues. And it's it's just their way of life. So even though you have some farmers who have been very happy to say, okay, I'll, I'll take your money, solar developer, and you can have my land to do what you please with, you have plenty of other folks, their neighbors and their friends and colleagues who see that as an affront to their way of life and as a threat to the future of this place as they know it. On the positive side, as we need to keep reminding ourselves, the community sees lithium extraction as resulting in growth of quality jobs, career-linked jobs, jobs paying $20 to $40 an hour. The presence of the lithium extraction facilities and expanded geothermal power plants are expected to grow the population in the valley, attracting family members home and creating new amenities for those who currently live there. The community has also acted on past examples of green extractivism. By enacting the tax on lithium production, there will be more infrastructure investment, paved roads, steel bridges, and generating funds to help mitigate the drying of the Sultan Sea. Having the jobs go to community members inspired the growth of local education programs. 
Perhaps the most difficult issue remains the increased threats to cultural landscapes as the power plants crowd buttes and hills that carry cultural significance to the Native Americans in the community. But even here, there is not a single voice. These tribes and groups within the tribes see growth of jobs and community development as important, and there is a desire to participate in discussions of how to manage the cumulative effects of industrial growth of the valley. Not far from the surface is the profit motivation of the corporations risking substantial sums of money to develop the direct lithium extraction technology. Without the opportunity to see that profit, the white gold boom in the valley would not be talked about. As prices fluctuate and new sources of lithium come on the market, the company's ability to raise funds necessary to build and operate their plants are at risk. Those with capital to invest seek confidence that the technologies will work and that there is project support in the community. While there is caution, the resulting outreach efforts appear to have been effective. In our conversations, the companies in the community have largely come together to reach a consensus that the projects will move forward. I'm struck by the lack of significance of global climate change in these discussions. In consideration of the growth of the lithium extraction industry, this topic is rarely brought up. My impression is that the evaluation of pros and cons is based on the capacity of the project to grow the economy of the valley. The valley has a resource the world is willing to pay for. The community evaluates the pros and cons of meeting the market's needs and acts according to their interests. Those interests are largely local, personal, family, and community-oriented. These conversations have a worldview based on private ownership of land and the resources incorporated into that land. Our laws support the ability of the landowner to exploit that land for their benefit. Members of the Valley do not appreciate activists from outside the Valley arriving to impose an external view of how they handle their land. This worldview clashes with one that sees the earth as something that cannot be owned and where the resources are not to be exploited, but managed within a framework that enables benefit to humans as well as to the non-human natural world. The indigenous community seeks to preserve cultural landscapes and not have industrial activity irrevocably change the environment. The outside world seeks to protect a unique environment. The outside world also sees the resources in the valley as vital to electrifying transportation. The locals are well-versed in these arguments and are perfectly capable of making the decisions on their own. Sylvia Earle, the previous chief scientist of NOAA and renowned oceanographer, has spent a career looking at human impact on the ecology of the ocean. In her eyes, the focus on local economic development misses the collective need for a viable ecology, and like Carmen Lucas, argues communities need to consider how human and non-human natural systems are interwoven in ways that are understood, misunderstood, and not understood. Nature doesn't have the voice. We can put on the balance sheet. What are the consequences to the people who live here, who need water, who need clean air, that is at risk because of these processes that are delivering benefits, quotes, to the greater world to make this transition away from fossil fuels. That's the cost part of the, quotes, cost-benefit ratio, and it needs to be seriously considered and, and given weight and to realize what was there before before, even before the current communities? What, what voices aren't we listening to? What have we displaced? Who have we displaced? What, what are the, the hidden costs? So easy to focus on the benefits, especially with big dollar signs associated with them. But what, what are the other real costs that may be even more valuable to the humankind? A hundred years from now, what are the losses that we need to to seriously account for? It, you can get dazzled by, oh, this is 
this is important. We've got to make this transition. And you can see it and you can bank it. <laughs> Most importantly, you can look at the, the money that's involved. But I, I just urge seriously looking at the lives, not only now, but beyond the next 10 years when this transition is likely to be most most important because if we don't get it right in the next 10 years, we will have lost the best chance we will ever have to come to grips with these planetary processes that are right on the edge of success or lack of it. We, and of course it's anchored in coal, oil, gas, fossil fuels, the carbon cycle, but there are other aspects of the carbon cycle <laughs> the people factors, the natural uh, natural world that governs our existence, that we need to get big minds, big thoughts, really think of through, and be willing to change on a dime if you find that, hey, now we see what we could not see before. We have to shift gears. So if... Everybody says, okay, cost-benefit, we've got to proceed. But if in the process we are willing to change, we haven't been willing to change our habits, our laws in time right now to deal with the, the, the big problems that are, are, you know, like coal, oil, gas, are solutions, but we're slowly you know, making this transition. We need to be willing to change, knowing that Everything is on the line right now. If you don't get that, then it's going to be hard to have a prosperous future. But one of the messages that I hope gets out there that there's never been a better time for us to take into account the nature of what keeps Earth habitable. What are we doing that can move us in the right direction? And are we willing to make that shift and, and, and it's not a hardship. It's, in fact, should be a cause for great, I don't know, exhilaration. We can be a part of whatever it takes to get to a better place and, a, and an enduring future for us and the rest of life on Earth. Nevertheless, both those who see the world as connecting human and non-human nature in a fragile web and those who believe in the ownership and use of property recognize the challenges of climate change and are working towards solutions. However, their solutions begin to diverge. One sees alternative technologies to sustain an energy-hungry way of life, whereas the other suggests modifying appetites for energy. One side pushes for recognition that over-exploitation will irreversibly damage our ability to live within our ecology and seeks caution in moving forward, exploring unintended consequences. The other suggests that our way of life cannot exist without extraction and seeks technologies to mitigate impacts we are observing and argues our energy-hungry way of life is sought all over the world. As a result, more rather than less energy is needed to advance human well-being. What becomes clear as we explore the activities in Lithium Valley is that the energy transition is underway and is disrupting ways of life at the local and global levels. These disruptions need not be bad, but neither must they be good. In the case of transportation, we are left with choices of continuing to burn fossil fuels, resulting in growing global environmental degradation, and or we can expand use of electric vehicles requiring local environmental degradation associated with extractive processes, and or we can drive less. Increasingly, we are asked to choose how much of each we are willing to tolerate. The Imperial Valley is a case study where the decision is being made to go forward with extracting a product vital to decarbonizing the economy, while ensuring that the community producing the product sees lasting benefits proportionate to the contribution the community is making to solving the global challenge. This process involves a continuous series of compromises. It's been a pleasure taking you on this journey into the Imperial Valley. 
Imperial Mayor Katie Burnworth sums up the situation best. I think it all kind of boils down to trust. You know, you have to say, this is what I'm gonna do and then go out and do it. And if you vary from that, you have to let people know this is why. And sometimes it's not the answer that people wanna hear. I mean, I know there's things that go on in Imperial all the time and people ask the question and I give them the answer and it's not necessarily the answer they wanna hear, but it's the truth. And I think you need to have, make sure that your politicians are being truthful about this. You know, let's not give the bureaucratic, you know, the answer where you get asked a question you don't answer it, you know? It, it can be all cupcakes and roses all the time. You, you gotta be honest and sometimes it's, people aren't gonna be happy about, you know, People all think Lithium Valley is going to happen overnight, but this is going to be a 10, 20 year process. We want to hear from our listeners. Check out our episode description for a link to a short paid survey. Next, we'll hear from Imperial Valley resident Natalie Lopez, a USC sophomore environmental studies major, a research assistant at the Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism, and this podcast's associate producer. She hosts our special seventh episode in Spanish, which is a collaboration with Dimolo, Annenberg Media and USC's only Latinx student-run news outlet. Take it away, Natalie. Hola, mucho gusto. Nos vemos pronto en este mismo canal. Electric Futures is an original podcast from the University of Southern California, hosted by me, Charles Zukoski the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering and Material Science, and the former USC Provost. This series was executive produced by Allison Agston, the director of USC's Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication. USC Annenberg Professor Mallory Cara is our lead producer. Natalie Lopez and Spencer Klein are our associate producers. Cindy Chai is our research assistant. This episode was directed by Mallory Cara and edited and sound designed by Spencer Klein. Electric Futures was recorded on location in Imperial Valley and in the Annenberg Media Center Studio B. Victor Figueroa, Sebastian Grubach, Matthew Buxbaum, and Tom Norris provided technical supervision. Our cover art is by Matthew Buxbaum. All music and sound effects used with express permission under limited blanket license authority from Epidemic Sound. We used audio from Gavin Newsom's August 2023 speech, which is public record. If you'd like to read more about the topics covered in this podcast, please check out our additional resources document linked in the episode description. You'll also find that we have links to the transcripts for this episode available in English and Spanish. You can also follow us on Instagram at USC underscore electric future. I want to thank the Institute of Creative Technologies for hosting me over the past year and Randy Hall for his interest in this project. I would also like to thank my wife, Barbara Morgan, for her continued patience for my fascination with lithium extraction.